When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, back once more with stories of Heracles and Dianera, and specifically the finale episode of Sophocles' tragedy, the Trachiniae, the women of Trachis. Oh, 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 how I love Greek tragedy. I love it more with every single one that I read for this show. Every one I break down for all of you gets me more excited for future episodes with future plays. They're just, they're so beautiful and interesting and complex and they can be interpreted and understood in so many different ways. And as much as I wish I could read ancient Greek, and hopefully one day we'll be able to, reading so many translations and working off of Ash's notes as well provides so much nuance, really opens up all the intricacies that exist in these ancient works. Fucking love it. But, well, today we're coming to the end of Heracles and Dianera's story. And oh, does it end. Just a trigger warning, this is a Greek tragedy, and so, aside from the wartime enslavement, there is also suicide. Once more, I feel the need to preface by explaining that I've written and recorded this episode well in advance of when it's being released. Everything is moving so fast lately, and often in horrifying ways, that who the fuck knows what's going to happen when this airs. Still, at least we have this tragedy of Sophocles to distract us from the world's horrors and tragedies by providing, well... Some ancient horror and tragedy. Where did we last leave Dianera? Well, her husband Heracles had been gone for over a month and she had absolutely no idea where he was or what he'd been doing. She was not having a good time. But finally, a messenger arrived with news of Heracles. He's alive! Woohoo! He's been in Icalia and also Lydia, but he's on his way home. Of course, that's the simplest answer. What comes before is that not only had he been away, but he'd spent a year living enslaved to a queen of Lydia, who we know to be Amphale, though she isn't named in this play, and then he'd gone and sacked Icalia because the king wouldn't let him marry his daughter Ioli, because, well, in this case, he's already married. 
Dianera, meanwhile, hears all this through convoluted circumstances, having to basically force Heracles' herald, Lycas, to tell her the truth after he'd first lied about why Heracles was there in Icalia and what his intentions were. This being after he brought Aeoli and a number of other now-enslaved women from Icalia home with him to Trachis. It's been a good time for Dianera. Even still, she understands what Heracles is like and what it's like to be a woman in that world. She doesn't even care that he's had lovers, other women, other children, and all his travels. No, she only draws the line at him bringing another woman into their house to live with them, almost as a part of their marriage. That, she says, quite reasonably, is too far. This is episode 159, When Poison Shirts Have Got You Down, Dianera and the Women of Trachis. Dianera is reeling. She has been unhappy for so long, anxious and worried about her husband and her life, just like all the time. So to hear that not only has he fallen in love with another younger woman, but that he literally destroyed this woman's city and killed everyone in it just so he could take her home to be his... what? His concubine, his lover, his second wife? That is just too much for Dianera, and the woman has put up with an awful lot already. She is, kindly, quite understanding when it comes to Ioli herself. It's refreshing, the lack of woman-blaming that's involved, given its Greek mythology. No, she knows that this is on Heracles. Still, she doesn't get angry. This isn't a Medea situation. It isn't Clytemnestra. She isn't overcome with rage. She isn't flying around in a fury or plotting revenge. She is just sad, and she wants to make it better. And fortunately, she has something that she understands will make this situation better. She has the blood of Nessos, the centaur, who... All those years ago, just after she and Heracles had gotten married, told her to, quote, Use this as a charm on the mind of Heracles, so he will never see a woman he loves more than you. Dianera only wants to make Heracles fall back in love with her. She wants him to see only her, to forget about this love for Ioli and all the trouble he's caused over this other woman. She just wants love and comfort from her husband. She wants the happy life that she hasn't yet had a chance to experience. When Lycas returns to Dianera, having said his goodbyes to the women inside, she hands him a box containing a robe that she's made for Heracles. Sometimes it's called a shirt. She hands it to him and she tells him to take it to Heracles, that it is a gift she's made for him with her own hands. 
She tells Lycas to instruct Heracles that he's the only one that should wear it, and that it mustn't see the light of the sun or sacred flame until he's shown it, worn it, in front of everyone. She says he must present himself in the clothing to the gods on his day of sacrifice. She tells Lycas specifically that, quote, I have made this oath. If I should see or hear that he is safe and coming home, then, as is my right and duty, I would clothe him new in a new robe for the gods to see as my offering. Dianera is so kind-hearted, so well-intentioned, so completely and utterly naive. That she has no idea what she's doing, that she only wants her husband to love her, really adds to the tragedy of this play. I'll say it again because it's, it's just so true and poignant, but she is not a Clytemnestra figure, not a Medea. She is almost unique in these women of tragedy. She just wants things to be as they were. She wants her husband to love her, and she doesn't want to live alongside his other woman. This blood of Nessos, she believes, will have that effect. That is, after all, what he told her. With this, Dianera sends Lycas off, hurrying him on his way to return to Heracles with her message and the box. But she adds before she goes, make sure you tell him how well we're doing here and what a warm welcome that I gave to these people that you brought with you. Oh yes, he replies, that much I have seen very clearly. You gave them a warm welcome indeed. And so, Heracles' herald, Lycas, returns to the hero where, on Eubea, he is worshipping and sacrificing to the gods in advance of, finally, finally, returning to his home, his wife and children, in Trachis. Dianera returns to her home, leaving the chorus of women to sing of what's been happening. They sing, quote, the son of Zeus and Alcmene is speeding homeward, bearing trophies, rewards for every kind of excellence. They sing of his time away, how they didn't know where he was or whether he was even safe and alive. They continue, quote, Bring him home, bring him home, O ship of many oars, and do not rest till he has reached this city. Dianera rushes from the palace in a panic. She's frantic as she comes to the chorus, telling them that she's worried she may have just made a horrible mistake. What is it? They ask her. Is it about the gift you've just given to Heracles? It is, she tells them. And what's happened was so strange you might not even believe me. Then Dianera explains what's gotten her so worried. She returned to her rooms when Lycas had gone off with Heracles' gift, and she came upon some of the leftover wool that she'd used to make his robe. It's disappeared, she says, quote, It devoured itself, wasted itself away, turned to dust, and blew off the high stone shelf. She tells them, that how she'd made the robe, that she'd done as Nessus had described to her all those years ago, smeared his blood on the wool and then made it into this robe. 
She'd kept it out of sunlight and away from the flame, just as he'd told her. She'd done it all right. But she said, it, it turned out there was a leftover piece of wool she hadn't noticed, it, because it was, wasn't the robe itself, and she'd accidentally tossed this piece into the sunlight. Then, quote, As it grew warm, it completely disappeared, crumbled into the earth. It was just like seeing dust fall in showers from the blade of a woodworking saw. And so it lay scattered on the ground. And there, where it lay, gouts of foam bubbled up from the earth like the thick juice of gleaming ripe grapes squeezed out on the ground from the dark fruit of Bacchus. This is when Dianera realizes what she's done, even if she had no idea what she was doing until that moment, until it was too late. Why was I stupid enough to think that Nessos was doing me this kindness, she asks herself, with the chorus there looking on. Why would he do something nice for me? It's so obvious now that his intention was to kill the man who'd killed him, to kill Heracles for what he'd done. She is horrified and so upset. How can I have realized too late? She asks pointlessly. I've figured it out, but it doesn't matter now. It won't do any good. She recalls that the same arrows that struck and killed Nessos, Heracles' arrows, had also injured another. Chiron, the godly centaur himself, quote, Whatever beast it touches, it kills. She speaks of the black poison of the blood oozing out of wounds. Quote, How could it not destroy his killer too? I think it will. Before she even lets the chorus utter a word, Dianera has run through all of these horrifying facts and scenarios out loud. She learns the truth all in a rush of speech, realizing everything that had happened without her noticing, the things she hadn't put together, things that seemed so obvious in hindsight. Of course Nessos would want to hurt her, to hurt Heracles. She can't believe she's done something so horrible, and she won't live with it. If Heracles is going to die because of what I've done, she says, I will die too. Sophoclean tragedy loves a woman dying by suicide. The chorus tries to talk her down, to say that she should wait and see what happens. Maybe it isn't as bad as she thinks. Maybe Heracles won't be killed. Be quiet, they tell her. Don't say a word unless you intend to tell your son Hylos, because, well, there he is. And Hylos is there, there with news. Because remember, time moves very differently in Greek tragedy, and we mustn't trouble ourselves with understanding when it might be that this time passes. The chorus's song earlier, when everyone had left or gone inside, is used to mark this passage of time. Enough time that Hylos' first words to his mother are, quote, There are only three things I could wish for you now. To be dead? or if you stay alive, to be anyone else's mother than my own, or that you'd exchanged your mind for something better than the one you have now. Ugh. 
Dianera, for her part, either doesn't realize it could have happened so quickly or just can't fathom her son knowing about her mistake or saying this to her because she just asks him what she's done to become so loathsome to him. You've killed your husband, he says. My father. Just today you've killed him. You've killed Heracles. You've killed Heracles, Dianera's son Hylos tells her. And even though she knows it to be true, she just concluded the same thing herself. She can't believe it. Can you believe it? It's Heracles. Who could even think that such a hero was capable of dying, this son of Zeus, dead? She can't believe it, though. She wonders whether it's hearsay. Who told you this? She asks her son. I saw it myself, he tells her. Quote, I saw it. It was terrible. I saw what happened to father with my own eyes. But where were you? She asks him. Were you close to your father when this happened? And so Hilo sets out to explain to his mother everything that happened. After he sacked Acalia, Hylos tells her he'd carried off his prizes and plunder. He'd gone to the edge of Euboea and built altars, a sacred grove, all dedicated to his father, Zeus. That's where I first saw him, Hylos says. I was filled with pure happiness at the sight of him. I'd wanted to see him for so long, to know that he was all right. He was about to sacrifice then, so many cattle there in thanks to the gods. And that's when Lycas appeared. Lycas arrived, bringing with him the gift you had given to your husband, to my father. And then Heracles put it on, just as you had directed. He followed your instructions, and he started to sacrifice the cattle, bringing them in one at a time. He was happy, he was sacrificing to the gods, and he was wearing beautiful clothes that had just been gifted to him by his wife. He was so happy with all of it. Hylos really twists the knife in poor Dianera's heart. Then, quote, As soon as the solemn ritual caught fire and a flame shot over the blood from the pitch-drenched pine, then sweat rose on his skin and that cloak started sticking to his sides as if it had been glued by a craftsman to every limb. A biting pain shot through his bones in spasms. Then it was cruel, as if he was being dissolved by the venom of a snake that had attacked him. From there, Hylos tells his mother that Heracles, understandably, screamed out at Lycas, blaming him for what was happening. Lycas, of course, had no idea what was going on, and he told Heracles as much, saying he'd only followed your, your Dianera's instructions. So, well, Heracles grabbed him by the ankle and smashed him against the rock so hard his head burst open. And then... The poor man's agony got even worse and even more disgusting. Heracles' death, or his act of dying, isn't pretty or clean or noble at all. It isn't the death of a hero like Heracles. He notices his son in the crowd, though, Hylos tells his mother. He notices Hylos and he calls out for his son's help to take him away so he doesn't die there on the cliffs of Euboea, watched by everyone. And Hylos does. He brings Heracles to his ship and he sails home with him. And so Heracles, dead or dying, is home now. After all this time, all this horror. You'll see him soon, Hylos tells his mother, either dead or alive. 
Dianera wants to rush off. She doesn't want to hear any more of this. But before he lets her leave, lets her sit with this news, this horrifying news, Hylos tells her that she's been caught out in her plot, believing that she'd planned all of this. And he curses her, curses her to be visited by the Furies, those goddesses of justice and punishment. Hylos's last line to his mother, Dianera, is, quote, He was the best man on earth, and you killed him. You will never see a man to equal him. So Dianera leaves the stage, and the chorus sings. They sing of Heracles, his actions in life and now in death. They sing of Dianera, how she weeps, how she took the advice of a stranger and now weeps at the destruction caused by it. They sing and sing of Heracles, of pain and horror, and they finish their song by blaming Ioli. It's all her fault, they decide. Heracles fell for her, his love for her caused all of this. So naturally, it's her fault. Fortunately, their song of blame for Ioli is interrupted. Unfortunately, it's interrupted by Dianera's servant woman from the beginning of the play, crying out from inside the house. Dianera is dead. She's killed herself with a sword. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The chorus can't believe what they've just heard. Dianera dead? They ask the woman to confirm a few too many times, just unable to comprehend what they're hearing. It's all coming at them so fast. Finally, they concede this must be true, and they ask how it happened. The woman tells them what she saw. When Dianera was inside, she caught sight of her son, Hylos, preparing a litter, a stretcher for his dying or perhaps already dead father, She saw him putting this together with care. She saw how distraught he was, and this broke her. Hiding herself from view, she went to her familiar altars, looking at them for the last time, seeing some of her favorite servants and crying out at them in anguish, knowing it would be her last. And then she went to their bedroom. It's referred to as Heracles' bedroom, but to me it's, it's pretty clear that they shared it, at least some of the time. She starts throwing blankets and pillows atop of the bed before climbing up herself. My bed, she says. Never will I sleep here with my husband again. She is, she is just so 
tragic. It's heartbreaking. There's something about having this woman who doesn't have anger, just sadness, that makes it so much more emotional. She didn't want any of this. She just wanted him to love her as he once had. The woman telling this to the chorus says when she saw Dianera doing this, climbing atop the bed and eventually pulling a pin from her dress, she knew she had to do something. So she went to get Hylos to bring him back to stop his mother. But it was too late. By the time the pair of them arrived back at the bedroom, Dianera had already done it. She'd thrust a double-edged sword through her side. Poor Hylos had to see it. And not only that, but the woman tells the chorus that Hylos also learned and believed that Dianera didn't kill Heracles on purpose, that it was all a mistake, a trick by Nessos the centaur. I could go on, but frankly this is one of the most heartbreaking and depressing bits of Greek tragedy that I have ever read. How much do you really need to hear about how Hylos mourned, how he'd become an orphan in the course of a day? by horrific and just plain tragic means, how he thought about the last words he spoke to his mother. So I will stop here. You get it. My heart can't take it. But, well, if you think this is the end of the tragedy of this play, strap the fuck in. Where does everyone stand in Trachis? Dianera, who never wanted any of this, who wanted only for her husband to love her, to not bring another woman literally into their bed, that was truly all she asks, and, well, she accidentally, truly and completely accidentally killed her husband. Fucking Heracles. And in her grief and her horror and her guilt, she ended her own life, in the place where she felt him most. And her son, her son had to witness it just a short time after he'd had to witness his father in a similarly horrible situation, fabric poisoning and burning his skin. Poor fucking Hylos, for real. Sophocles really coming at us with the horrible, distressing, and depressing feels. The chorus sings over the death of Dianera, the tragedy of the whole situation. Which is sadder, they ask, her death or his? But they can't find a distinction. The fates of the two are equally sad. Still they and the audience have yet to actually see Heracles, to witness what has and is happening to him. Just as Dianera's death happens offstage, allowing the imagination to do the work, So has the horror of Heracles. But now he is coming, the chorus knows, and they sing, quote, I pray for a breeze, a fair wind at our hearth, to carry me away from this place, so that I won't die of horror merely from catching the sight of him, the powerful son of Zeus. A procession of people nears the chorus, finally. Heracles is near, He's arrived home after so long. He's being carried on a stretcher by men in his army with an old man attending to him. Hylos cries out. The poor boy doesn't know what to do, how to handle himself. There's his father dead or dying. He isn't even sure yet. And he's just witnessed his own mother's death from sadness, her own grief and guilt having killed her. The old man attending Heracles shushes Hylos, saying that yes, he is alive, 
but he's sleeping, and if he wakes, then the madness will come rushing back to him. I think the use of the idea of madness here is critical. It's describing the experience he's having, the pain and burning of the poisoned clothes and how it's affecting his mind, but it's also linking back to his long, long history of madness, of mental illness that's caused so much tragedy in his past. But of course, Heracles does wake up, because we must finally, finally hear the voice and words of Heracles himself, even though he's near death. He cries out, lamenting everything. What thanks he's gotten for his sacrifice, his gift to the gods. He calls to his father, Zeus, and laments the harm that's been done to him. He links it all to Zeus without outright blaming him, but it's important. He's been called the son of Alcmene so many times in this play, but now, now he's calling to his father for good or bad. He is completely out of it, just racked with pain, his mind completely affected by it. He calls out, let me go, let me go. He wants to sleep, but he can't. The pain is too bad. It's so hard, he says. Hylos tries to move him to alleviate his pain, but it doesn't do any good. It makes it worse. It reminds Heracles of the pain. His entire body has been affected by the fiery poison of Nessos's hydra-infused blood. He's crying out, not at anyone in particular. It's like he doesn't see Hylos or the man attending him. He's not fully aware of anything. Still, he cries, quote, You men in Greece, are you really Greeks? Real Greeks would treat me fairly. For you I scoured clean the sea and all the forests. I gave my whole wretched life to make them safe for you. What a line. If Sophocles does anything with the Heracles of this work, it's to remind people of the humanity of even the strongest and most famous of heroes. He's still dying and he's looking back on his life and wondering whether it was all worth it in the end. Finally, Heracles regains enough consciousness to ask for Hylos, calling out to his son. Hylos helps him, does what he can, but nothing can really help Heracles now. The pain is constant. He's suffering horribly, like all his skin is on fire. He asks Hylos to end his pain, to take a sword to his throat and finish him, put him out of his misery. He's desperate to die. That is the type of pain that he, Heracles, the man who's withstood just about everything, is experiencing. And then his pain turns to anger and he speaks of his wife, blaming her for what she's done, asking that she suffer the same fate. Here, Heracles launches into a monologue. He starts just comparing everything he's done and experienced in his life to this moment, this pain that he's in. 
None of my labors ever tormented me like this, he says. Nothing Hera ever did caused such suffering, nor Eurystheus and the labors he assigned to me. Nothing has been as bad as what my wife, Dianera, has done to me. He says, quote, It's plastered to my ribs, gnaws into me, eats my muscles, it's glued to my windpipe, it sucks the air out of my lungs, slurps up the bright blood, wastes my frame completely. It's so visceral, so gory, so utterly horrifying. A word I'm overusing in this episode, but is there a better way to describe it? I don't think so. He continues, nothing on the battlefield has ever done anything like this. No giants or beasts or Greeks or foreigners, nothing has done the damage of, quote, a woman. However, a female woman, a coward by birth. I'm recording this on International Women's Day. He turns to Hylos, repeating his earlier request. He wants to see Dianera. He wants her hauled out of the house and brought before him to suffer the same pain that he now suffers. But he doesn't let Hylos respond, doesn't hear the news of his wife. He just keeps going. It burns, he says, a raging blind spasm. He asks Hades to take him away, pleads to the brother of his own father to strike him down. He recites more from his past, his heroic history, reminding the audience who he is, what he's done, what he's seen, reiterating time and time again that with all he has done and seen, he has never felt like this. It's really just so horrifying. It's just pain and torment and terror, and it's just completely and utterly awful the whole way through. The play turned when Dianera died, and now it's just this. More and more of this. Finally, though, Heracles pauses long enough for Hylos to speak. And he begins to, but Heracles can't stand listening to him. He can't understand when he speaks like this. His pain has overtaken him, and he's just being mean and impatient. But Hylos tries to explain anyway. He tries to explain to Heracles that what Dianera did wasn't on purpose. She didn't mean to hurt him. It was an accident, involuntary. It was the work of Nessos the centaur and not the will of Dianera. Of course, Heracles doesn't take this well. He doesn't want to hear that she isn't to blame. He doesn't want to hear Hylos defend her. But Hylos remains strong, unlike so many other children of these tragedies. He does understand that Dianera did not do it on purpose. He doesn't stay mad at her. He defends her, even to his dying and belligerent father. He says that it would be wrong for him to stay silent. And when Heracles counters with, sure, let's not stay silent about her crimes against me, Hylos counters with, then I won't stay silent about the things she's just done. So he tells Heracles, he tells him that Dianera is dead, that she's killed herself. Heracles is mad, only mad that he didn't get to do it himself. But Hylos continues to press him with the truth. You wouldn't feel this way if you understood what happened, he tells his father. You wouldn't be this angry. He says, quote, in a nutshell, she went wrong trying to do right. And if that isn't the perfect way to describe so many moments of Greek myth, so many misunderstood prophecies and well-intentioned accidents. 
Hylos continues to push against Heracles' anger, his lack of desire to hear anything that Hylos has to say about Dianera. But he gets it out. He tells him what happened, that Dianera thought it was a love charm, that she just was trying to make her husband love her, and that it was the long-dead centaur Nessus who was at fault, who tricked Dianera, who killed Heracles. At this, Heracles reveals another prophecy that he had been told. There are so many now, and all told through Zeus at the Oracle of Dodona. I think we can assume they were all told at once, but this one is pretty different from what Dianera had heard and told us. He says that he was told that he would die at the hands of one who was already dead. Now he knows what it means. Nessos, the centaur who died so, so many years ago now, was killing him all the same. Then he reiterates the other part of the prophecy, the one that Dianera had known, that either at that time he would die or be released from his labors. But of course this means the same thing, which he now understands. He was never going to be released from his labors while still alive. So he forms a plan. Heracles experiences some lucidity, and he takes full advantage. Do you know the mountain Eta? He tells Hylos. Of course, Hylos tells him, it's where they sacrifice to Zeus regularly. Bring me there, Heracles instructs. Bring me there and construct a pyre from the oak trees of Zeus and the wild olive trees. Lay me on it, Heracles tells Hylos, and set it alight. Do this without shedding a tear. I want no mourning, no suffering, just do it. Yes, Heracles has just asked his own son, who's already experienced more grief and horror than anyone should ever have to deal with, to set him on fire. Hylos tries to fight him on this, but there's no use. Finally, he agrees to take his father there and to build the pyre, but he, someone else will light the match. Okay, it's not a match. However, they were going to light the fire. Heracles is happy with that. As long as he's going to die in this way, to be free from his torment, that's enough. But first, he says, I have some life instructions for you. Strap in, they're gross. Heracles tells Hylos that he must take Ioli to be his wife. That because Heracles has already had sex with her, no other mortal man can marry her but his son. Yeah. Ick. Seriously ick. In Hylos' defense, he sees a few issues with this. How could I marry her? He asks. She's the one who caused my mother's death and yours too. Which, I mean, not really, but I get where he's coming from, and regardless of who's at fault, he absolutely should not marry Ioli. That's fucking weird! (laughs) He adds that it would be better if he were dead than to live in marriage to an enemy. But no, Heracles will not be turned, and he guilts the absolute fuck out of Hylos for even suggesting that he doesn't want to follow his father's instructions. So, though hesitantly, Hylos finally agrees. What Ioli thinks about the matter is, of course, unsurprisingly, not of anyone's concern. With this decided, it's time. Heracles wants Hylos to move quickly, to get him to the mountain and atop his funeral pyre before the next wave of pain hits him. So they rush. They move quickly, with the help of the same soldiers who carried Heracles in. They prepare to head to the mountain to build the funeral pyre for Heracles, this strongest and best of the heroes, and there they will set him on fire. 
And so, as they prepare for this, Hylos says, quote, What is to come is not for anyone to see, but what stands now is pitiful for us, and shameful for them, but most harsh for him of all men, the one who bears this rage. Then he turns to the chorus leader, the head of these women of Trachis, these Trachinii, and he speaks the play's final words. Quote, Do not leave this home, young woman. You have seen majesty in death and novelty, much suffering, and suffering in new forms. And nothing in this is not Zeus. Nothing in this is not Zeus. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. What a fucking heartbreaking ending. Just absolutely no lightness, no redeeming moments. It's just horrible tragedy that never ends and only gets worse. And nothing in this is not Zeus. What's so interesting, too, and I'm discussing it more with a guest on this week's conversation episode that's upcoming, so stay tuned because I won't get into too much here because, ooh, my guest has way too much amazing stuff to say. But this is not the traditional end for Heracles, or at least not all of it. Yes, he dies. We are to imagine that this play ends with Heracles set on fire, or at least... He is basically on fire from the pain, and then they're going to actually set him ablaze. So yes, yes, he dies. He dies horrifically and tragically, but in the end, he's meant to be apotheosized. That is, turned into a god and brought to live on Mount Olympus with Zeus and the others because he's Heracles. He will marry a nice goddess named Hebe and presumably live happily ever after as a god, But that was too nice for Sophocles, too uplifting and redeeming, and so instead he just went for utter and complete, just abject tragedy. Ugh, but I don't want to leave you on this intensely tragic note, because not only is it a bummer generally, but it's an extra bummer given the state of the world right now. Are we living through the end of days? I mean, slowly, but surely. I'm thinking yes. So instead, I want to look at what exactly Disney did with Heracles' story in light of this play and the details that I shared before the play. Because Disney manages to pull little bits and pieces from so many of his disparate stories and nestle them into the movie. It's, it's well done. The writers handled it well, even if I wish he was called fucking Heracles and not Hercules. But what kind of debate do we think went on in the writer's room in this decision to name the love interest Meg? Okay, like some executive was like, all right, Heracles has got to have a love interest. This is the 90s, and isn't that the crux of basically everything? Love. So what do we call her? Well, we should name her based off of Heracles' myth, obviously. But who to go with? Well, there's his most famous wife, one of the writers maybe chimed in, Dianera. We could name her Dianera. That's an awful long and tricky name, the exec must have replied, because again, the 90s. How does her story go again, he would ask? Well, she accidentally kills him. Okay, maybe not Dianera. Who else do we have? Well, his first wife was named Megara. Someone else might chime in. Perfect. 
thinks the exact. We can call her Meg. That sounds American. And we don't want to bother the kids with pesky Greek names. Just like Philoctetes will be called Phil and Phobos and Deimos will be called Pain and Panic. Megara will just be Meg. Dumb it down, writers. <laughs> so, wonders the exec, how does Meg's story go with Hercules? And then I like to think the writers were already so annoyed that the exec wanted to get rid of so much of the Greek mythology from this movie, based on Greek mythology, that they just kind of um, lied to him. <laughs> we're like, oh, Meg, she, she died, but we don't have to put that in the movie. And of course, the exec didn't bother to ask why or how she died, because women die all the time, and why bother wondering why? So we all just got to sit back and watch this adorable children's movie full of happy songs and love, features romance between characters, one of whom will go on to murder the other, and their children, because the nice mommy up in the clouds sends him to a state of madness. Lovely. Fucking love that movie. Well, as I mentioned, stay tuned because later this week, I'm bringing you a conversation episode about the Trachinii with past guest and all around very entertaining person, Amy Pistone. We spoke about Sophocles last year. So of course I brought Amy back to talk Trachinii. How could I not? There's some incredibly fascinating stuff in this conversation. Oh, it, I can't wait for y'all to hear it. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith runs the YouTube account where episodes are being uploaded and captions are being added for greater accessibility. Michaela also handles promotional images and so, so, so much more, including research for an upcoming series of episodes in the vein of Atlantis. <gasps> it's going to be a while now, but you're going to fucking love it. The podcast is hosted and monetized by the nice people at Acast. Thank you all so much. As always, I couldn't do this without you. I am Liv and I absolutely love this shit. Fucking Greek tragedies are the goddamn best, you know? <sighs> When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... 
Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.